0: You may have seen this on the news this past week, but about 18 years ago, a woman walked into a Florida hospital, posed as a nurse, and kidnapped a newborn girl and took her home to be her daughter with her up in South Carolina. Well, investigators for 18 years never located the child. That was until this past week, a South Carolina Sheriff's Department received a tip about the odd relationship that Gloria Williams had with her teenage daughter, and so they brought... Williams in for questioning and on Friday just two days ago they did some DNA testing that revealed 18 years ago on July 10th 1998 Gloria Williams kidnapped Kamaya Mobley from a Jacksonville hospital and took her home to to be her daughter now They immediately obviously arrested her. They then took her teenage daughter back down to her biological family. They gave her a moment to say goodbye to the woman that that raised her. But can you imagine just how relieved and excited her birth mom really was when they found out that she had been located and that she was coming back home? But even more than that, I mean, how confusing and hurt would this be for this poor teenage girl? I mean, for her entire life, she believed that she was somebody that she really wasn't. I mean, for almost two decades, she had been living in this identity only to find out at a moment's notice that she really wasn't who she thought she was. Now, if you were here with us last weekend, we learned that a lot of us walk around in life in somewhat of a false identity. We, we have forgotten who we are more than we realize, and, and this happens when we believe different labels that have been maybe thrown onto us. We listen to whispers in our minds that, that we think we will never amount to uh, whatever it may be because maybe a mistake that you made in, in the past, and, and this is why it matters for us because we always lower ourselves to the level uh, of who we think we are. We believe that our worth and value is tied up into into what we do. And so as we learned last week, what we do will never undo what Jesus did, all right? Now, for the next several weeks, what we're gonna be doing is walking through a book in scripture called First Corinthians that was written to a group of believers during the first century that honestly, they were going through an identity crisis, all right? I mean, they'd forgotten who they were, and as a result, their life was just really messy. They were just making mistakes left and right. Apparently, a group of guys got together at the local gym, and in the locker room, one of the guys started bragging about how he had been sleeping with his dad's wife. Now, you know that the church is messed up when we can only hope that she was his stepmom, all right? Jerry, 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 you know? This is why it's always funny to me when someone comes to me and says, you know, we just need to be like the first century church. I wish we could be like the church in the New Testament. I mean, really? Because the church back then was pretty messed up. The Corinthian church, they they were known for fighting and arguing with one another, which, which I know never happens today in the church. All right. And yet knowing all of these different issues and everything that was going on in their life, the establisher of this church, a guy by the name of Paul, as he, as he wrote this letter to them, the first thing that he said to them wasn't, how could you? He, he didn't validate some of the labels that maybe they had been throwing on themselves. He didn't say, I mean, are you guys even Christians? I can't tell that by the way that you're living. No, instead, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, here's how Paul begins his letter to them. He says, I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus. And so again, Paul didn't Paul start out by saying, you know, you're a mistake. What an embarrassment you are. Are, are you sure that, that you've been taking this Jesus guy seriously? Because I, I can't tell. No, he starts out by reminding these believers of who they were. He he gets to the root issue, which is their their identity. The Corinthian church, they didn't have a memory problem. They didn't even have a sin problem. They were going through an identity crisis. You see, somewhere along the way in their journey with Jesus, they had just forgotten who they were. And, And so do you know what our takeaway is as followers of Jesus? That when we sin, when we mess up, when we face our own brokenness in life, our sin is simply a disconnect between our identity and our behavior. That's not who we are. No, because Paul says that if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have put your faith in him, if you have believed in him, then you are adopted. You are a part of his family and you are chosen. You are his his child. And so... Much of this life is all about figuring out how we as a church can figure out how to live more in our identity. And we're trying to figure this all out and it's a process, none of us ever arrive there. And and you see the church from the beginning has always been a really messy and broken place. Why is that? Well, because you and me are here, right? We're sinners, We, we don't have it all together. And I've said this before, I'll say it again, if we here at Crossroads haven't disappointed you yet, just give us a few more weeks all right because we're all sinners we're all broken and, and that's part of being that's part of being a part of this community of, of followers of Jesus this community that Jesus started 2000 years ago and And so today Paul is going to take a turn by going from uh, reminding the Corinthians of who they were to then identifying some ways in which it was obvious they had forgotten their identity, all right? And he is going to address in a very forthright way some of the arguments and divisions that were taking root in this church. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, all right? It is towards the back of your Bibles, right in between the books of Romans and 2 Corinthians. If you don't own a Bible, There should be a Bible right in the seat in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, should be on that table right as you walked in a moment ago. All right, and uh, we are gonna pick up in verse 10 today. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, words will also be up here on the screen. Here's what Paul says. So he takes a turn from talking about identity to, to then this. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, To live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Now, I want you to first notice how Paul called for the church to unite by the authority of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the motivation behind unity in the church. He's the answer to all of our problems. We're equally lost, we're equally broken, and yet we're also equally saved because of Jesus. And so the peace that, that we have with our holy God, with the holy creator of the universe, is to be represented by the harmony that we have with one another. Now, evidently, the Corinthians were doing just the opposite. I mean, this church was on the verge of, of split and fracture. And some of us might be thinking right now, well, that's great, but what, what defines... A church division. What, what defines a split in a church? How does that even happen? It's a great question. And so let's let's say it like this: let's go with this definition: that a church division is simply a misplaced focus, motivated by fear, that leads to disjointed relationships. Somewhere along the way, we, we lose sight of what it's all about. And and usually it's not because it's motivated by a place of faith, of trust, but no, it's motivated out of fear, and, and the result is fragmented, disjointed relationships. In verse 10, the word division comes from the Greek word schism, and, and in the first century, that, that was a political term used to describe the opposing parties and groups that believe differently than one another. You see, separation and superiority happens when, when someone may be really passionate about being for or against something. But you see, God's kingdom is is different. And Jesus said that the first shall be last and and the last shall be first. You see, a church that is divided is a church that lacks understanding in what Jesus did for us. I mean, never is it more obvious that we've lost sight of the cross and when we argue and fight with one another, You see, we've misplaced our focus when we think that someone is maybe not all there yet because they don't pray as much as we do. We've misplaced our focus when we think that certain passages in Scripture give us permission to mistreat people. We've misplaced our focus when we think that, you know, we have the right to not forgive somebody based upon a comment that they made to us that we took really personal. That's what it really means to to be a divided church. Back in college, I attended a, um, a church located right outside Lexington, uh, Kentucky, called Southland Christian Church. And apparently, years before, the church was uh, on the verge of a split and division, and a new pastor had rolled into town. And uh, and here, here's what the split and division and all the arguments uh, was, was over. There was a communion table at the front of the church, and on that table was obviously the bread and the juice, and, and the elements would be distributed throughout the service when the time came but before each service a communion volunteer would come and and cover the bread and the juice with a white um, with a white bed sheet and so this pastor said well why, why do we do that it just seems a little bit weird and so one weekend he had the nerve to remove that sacred sheet from the communion table well, this just caused a stir in the church, and people were withholding their tithe, and they were threatening to leave, and they were you know, talking about going and starting another church in another part of town where they could do what they wanted with their bedsheets. And so eventually, this kind of hit the fan with the leaders at the time, and so they called an all-church meeting, and, and they said, we've got to figure this out. There's disharmony here, and... And so eventually someone said, well, well, let's get back to this question. Why in the world did we even start putting this sacred sheet over the bread and the juice to begin with? Well, one elderly guy about in his 90s stood up and said, you know, I've been at this church from the beginning. And I'll never forget when we started putting that sheet over the communion table. It all started because one weekend in our church facility, we had a really bad bug problem. And the communion volunteers couldn't find a bug net. Talk about a great reason to split a church, right? (laughs) And see, when we misplace our focus, we, in our zeal and in our lack of trust in one another, we just get excited and passionate about things that honestly don't really matter at all. But you see, God takes unity very seriously. The Bible talks about unity in the church more than it does about heaven or or hell. In Proverbs chapter six, God says that one of the seven detestable sins in his eyes are, are those who cause division and disharmony in a family. Now understand that unity doesn't mean that there's no safe outlet to express concerns or to challenge one another, that's not what unity is. Unity doesn't mean that that we all look alike, it doesn't mean that that we all have to even like each other, all right, let me just give you some breathing space here. Jesus didn't tell us to go out and and like each other as we like ourselves, no, he said to love one another as we love ourselves And, and sometimes there's a difference between loving and liking, right? Now, oneness in the church is about us intentionally living out our common identity in Christ together as a family. And so, if division is defined as a misplaced focus motivated by fear, then unity for us, unity happens when we focus on Jesus. It happens when when He's the main thing, when He's what it's all about. Let's pick back up in our text in, in verse 11. Take a look at what Paul continues to say. He says, For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. My dear brothers and sisters, some of you are even saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. I understand that the city of Corinth was all about status and superiority and prestige and in this culture. Your identity was defined in terms of who you hung out with, which re- who went to different restaurants with you. And, and so evidently these believers were, were dragging into the church that, that mentality. They were going around bragging about which pastor invited them to be a part of his volunteer team, which pastor was in their small group, or which pastor performed their wedding or visited them in the hospital. But you see, the problem was that they seemed to be more committed to a pastor than the church. They seemed to have a greater loyalty to a certain ministry than they did to Jesus. And evidently the Corinthians were trying to find their worth and value in something or someone other than Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul says, has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized into the name of Paul? Of course not, Paul says. Paul's saying here that the church, just like Jesus' resurrected body, will always be a place where there are scars and bruises and piercings. I mean, that's why Jesus never meant for the church to be a place where, where we felt this pressure to hide, deny, or suppress our sin. No, when we confess our sin and we bring it to light, that only magnifies the grace of God. And that's when we experience healing. And so, regardless of what you've been told or taught, the church didn't pay for your sin. The church didn't defeat death for you. No priest but the great high priest can offer forgiveness. It's all about Jesus, and we're called to focus on him, especially since time is running out and life gets shorter with each passing day. You probably know by now that uh, I love college basketball. I'm a huge Louisville Cardinals fan, and I just want you to imagine with me for just a moment that uh, one of you in grace and goodness and generosity gave me tickets to an upcoming home game uh, at the Yum! Center in downtown Louisville and so I arrived there I'm wearing my red shirt and of course everyone there we're all there to cheer on the cards as well and so we're we're all wearing red or white or, or black and uh, we're, we're, we're there because we want to see our team completely crush the opposing team right <laughs> And so all throughout the game, we're going to cheer together. We're going to, you know, get nervous together. We might even yell at the ref together. We're, we're on the same team. We're there for the same purpose to see that the Louisville Cardinals are, are going to win the game. Now, I want you to imagine with me that it's a really close game, and, and 10 seconds are left on the clock in the entire game. We're down by one point, All right. And so it's our possession, our point guard is dribbling the ball up the court. In that moment, let me just ask you a question. In that moment, how do you think I would take it if the person beside me tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, who, who'd you vote for? I mean, what if the person in front of me turned around and said, hey, what do you think about Coach Petino's game plan? I mean, do you really agree with his defensive strategy? I mean, I'm probably gonna have some choice words for somebody that does that, right? Why? Why? Because I'm focused on the game, and the less time there is, and, and the more there seems to be some hopelessness about who's going to win, the more I'm going to be rooting for Louisville to, to win. Nothing's going to get between that. I don't go to a Louisville game to talk about politics. I don't go to, have to eat their food or based upon the comfort of their chairs. No, I go because I want my team to win. I'm, I'm there to cheer them on. And you see, the Bible tells us that, that time's actually running out. That with each passing day, God is actually exercising more and more patience so that one more person might turn and repent to him. And and so our responsibility as a church, as followers of Jesus, is to go out and to connect as many people as possible to him because we believe that Christ himself has the power to change our eternities. And so that is our mission, that that is our purpose in life. That's why Paul says, be of one thought in of one purpose. But if there's anything that can distract us from our purpose... It's when we start to argue with one another. It's when we start to bicker back and forth. I think sometimes we as a church experience what what we could call the fog of war, all right? Fog of war is when you are just so disoriented about who the enemy is that, that we end up we end up shooting each other. We end up having some friendly fire happening because we're just so confused about who the enemy really is and what our purpose is in, in life. And, and so for the next few moments, what I wanna do is I just wanna walk through some different ways that division can happen in the church. All right, now I just wanna make known that, that rarely is division uh, by any one person intentional. All right, rarely does a person wake up in the morning and say, hey, how can, how can I just cause a bunch of arguments and stir in, in, in the church? Some of us might actually wake up with that mentality, and you know who you are. But uh, most of us don't, and so this is an unintentional thing that we just happen to arrive at. Therefore, we need to be aware of of how it happens. And and so the first way that division happens goes like this. Division happens when our focus is inward and, and not outward. One of the reasons we're called by Jesus to be one with each other is because we've been given this common mission. Moments before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he actually prayed for you. He prayed for me. He prayed for the church. I want you to look at what he prayed according to John chapter 17. Jesus said this, my, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Verse 21, he says, may they be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that, in other words, Jesus is saying, here's one of the main reasons and the purposes behind unity so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so catch this for just a second. During Christ's final moments, he not only prayed that we as a church would be one, that we would be united, but that our unity would be so contagious, all right, that it would attract those who are running from God. You see, Jesus in turn gave us back the peace that we were created for when he absorbed our punishment for us. And, and so his intention was that his community, the church, would be a place that reflected harmony and peace. But sadly, one of the biggest obstacles, we know this, one of the biggest obstacles that non-believers have with Jesus is that the church just seems to be so divided into different denominations. And when you get down to it, division in the church usually goes back to, to pride and immaturity. I mean, we all think we're right right? And the problem is that we tend to see the church as a place that exists to meet our every need. I mean, we want things to be done our way. And when we choose to join a church, we say things like, you know what? I just can't wait to see what this church is going to do for me, what this church is going to provide for my family. And so let me just clarify some misconceptions that you may have about Crossroads. Our goal is not to please everybody. That's impossible and it's enslaving. Now here's the thing, the more we focus on ourselves at church, the less we look like Jesus. Our sovereign warrior king came to serve, not to be served. There's never been someone more deserving of honor, glory and worship than Jesus. And yet his 33 year life here on earth, it looked nothing like that. It looked, he lived as if he deserved nothing at all. And so maintaining an inward focus leads us to a place where we're bitter, we, we think that we're entitled, frustration and a lot of anger. Why is that? Well, because chances are we are looking to something or someone that only Jesus can provide. The Bible would call that idolatry. And so our goal here at Crossroads is to point as many people as possible to Jesus in the shortest amount of time. And Jesus prayed that, that we would be one so that we wouldn't make it difficult for people who are trying to connect with him. I mean, after all, how effective can we be at connecting people to Jesus if, if we're divided as a family? When my wife and I uh, go out on a date, we usually hire a babysitter to come over and watch our three kids. And and when we walk through the door, we always ask the same question, how did the kids do? Did they obey tonight? And we want them to obey because, let's be honest, we, we want our babysitter to come back. And we want some depth on that babysitter list, all right? Now, I've never had a babysitter tell me, you know what, your kids were just awful tonight, I mean, I loved the way that they just argued back and forth for, two, for 30 minutes about which episode of Paw Patrol to watch. And I mean, there's just nothing more soothing than a, a crying 10-month-old baby that, that can't be soothed at all. And I'm trying to rock him back and forth and nothing seems to be working. Besides all that, I just love cleaning up after your puppy who isn't potty trained yet. When can I come back? Never had a babysitter say that. Why? Because we don't like Chaos. We don't like messiness, we, we run the other direction. And so it's one thing when children act that way, we expect it, but what are the consequences when we as adults act like kids? Take a look at what Paul later said in chapter three, it's actually language that he uses. Paul said, I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world, as though you were infants in Christ, he said. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger and you still aren't ready. For you are still being controlled by your sinful nature. How is this manifesting itself? He says this, you're jealous of one another and you quarrel with each other. You fight, you bicker, you're divided. You see, the Corinthians, they weren't fighting over how to connect more people to Jesus, (laughs) They weren't fighting over identifying more effective ways to help the homeless. They weren't fighting about how to resource some of the single moms in their church. No, their shouting matches, silent treatments, pouting, gossip, and rants on social media were all rooted in personal entitlement and pride. Back in the fall, Lifeway Research Group down in Nashville did a study that kind of uh, looked at all the different churches across America that have either died in the past or are declining and are are dying in itself. And, And they said the one clear indicator that death is on the horizon for a church is if somehow that church has developed an inward focus. But make no mistake about it because that's not gonna happen here. We're a church that is committed to thinking, praying, giving, and making decisions based upon who's not here yet. Now, what I'm not saying is the personal needs don't matter. I'm not saying that it's wrong to have an opinion or preference. We all have preference, but we need to remember that it's not about me and it's not about you. It's not about us. Uh, Bob and Rita Wheeler of our church, they're in their 60s, and they've been a part of Crossroads for a long time now. They recently told one of our staff members, they said, you know what? We just don't really care for the music around here. It's just so loud, and it's just not our thing. And I got to tell you, we just don't really connect with it. And then they said, but but we know that it's reaching people who aren't here yet. And so I want you to know that we're not just gonna be supportive, but we are excited to be a part of this and where our church is headed in the future. You see, maturity is not about neglecting your preferences. Maturity is about taking your preferences and putting it on the altar, surrendering them to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, not my will, but your will be done. Maturity is about denying your right to always complain, gossip while choosing to focus on the one who promises to never change. Well, let's keep going if you haven't left yet. All right. Here's another way that we hurt the body of Christ. Number two, division happens when we elevate the messenger above the message. Now, as we've seen in our text, the Corinthians were segregating themselves into different ministries and they were acting better than others because of their relationship with, with one of the leaders. Now, just to be fair, when this happens in the church today, the pastor and elders have to take responsibility. One of my jobs, along with our elders, is to protect you from anything that could be damaging to your relationship with Jesus or maybe a hindrance to someone who is seeking after Christ and, and needs to bump into Jesus. One of my jobs is to make sure that that you're being trained and released to do ministry in your cubicle, neighborhood, workout facility, and restaurant. Now, it can be really tempting for us as pastors to want to control everything and to be up front the more the church grows. And and that's a pretty natural temptation for, for a lot of guys. But... Here at Crossroads, we are determined to make sure that this doesn't happen because what can happen without a strategy otherwise is that unintentionally, the church over time is built upon a personality, it's built upon a pastor and and not Jesus Christ. And so I've talked with our elders a lot about this. In the next year or so, uh, I will be hiring a teaching pastor to come and be a second voice to, to, to help share the preaching responsibility here at church. Now, because of my age, it's only wise and best that we find somebody who is much older than me, all right? And so this individual needs to at least be in his mid-30s. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know that... Uh, there's nothing special about us pastors. Sometimes we think that they're superhuman, that they deserve our reverence and all, and I hope, you don't, I hope you don't think that about me. I mean, if this church were all about me, that Crossroads would just be a mess, all right? Someone said to me recently, you know, the more I've gotten to know you, the more I realize how boring and unimpressive you really are. <laughs> Felt like saying, thanks, Mom, you know? <laughs> I love to be open with you. I love to share my struggles with you because maybe, just maybe, you can hear what I'm going through, and you can walk out of here realizing, you know what, if Patrick is struggling with that, if he's dealing with that in his life, I guess it's okay that I am too, and, and I don't need to hide that. And so this is a journey that we're on together to work out our identity, right? And here's the third way that um, division can happen. Division happens when we determine motives rather than trusting best intentions When we lack trust in each other, we're prone to draw unfair conclusions and inaccurate realizations about each other. You see, when we claim to know the story, when we know the background and we know the conversations that supposedly took place behind closed doors, we are attaching a motive with a decision, or we're saying that that actually happened when when maybe it didn't. We withhold from people when we do this, the very thing that has saved us and rescued us from what we deserve, and that's grace. One time, Jesus told the religious leaders that, that he came to this earth kind of like a, 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 as a doctor, not for healthy people, but for sick people. And so in a way, if, if we're to carry that analogy out a little bit further, the church is to be a hospital where we can experience healing, where we can be rescued from death. Now, that sounds really good and noble and all, but reality sets in for us when we realize that hospitals can be pretty messy places. I mean, we're all broken, so there are times, let's be honest, that we offend one another, and we say things we don't mean. And so Jesus said something about that too. He said, hey, look, if a brother or sister offends you, if he sins against you, then, then simply go to him and say, hey, look, here's what you said, and I've been holding this against you. Jesus said, if, if he or she doesn't listen to you at that moment in time, then you are to bring someone else along with you in hopes that you can clear the air and that there can be unity between the two of you. If he or she still doesn't listen to you after you bring someone with you, then, then understand that, you know, you're good to go. We can't always control how people respond when we talk with them, when we maybe confront them. But what we do have control of is whether or not we obey what Jesus tells us to do when when a brother or sister offends us. One of the rules that we have as a staff here is to privately confront, but to publicly defend. You see, we lessen people's identity when we determine motives. Can you believe that she said that? How arrogant. I just... Don't really think that, that he meant what he said. His heart wasn't in the right place, or, or she just must not care about me because she didn't visit me when I was in the hospital. I gotta tell you, I have so much respect for those of you that have come to me at different moments over the past four years since I've lived here and said, you know, I don't know if this is true, but here's what I've heard from a lot of people, and I just want you to be aware so that maybe you can confront the illusion that's taken place. In his book Unaffendable, Brent Hansen simply says, "Surrender the idea, surrender, surrender the idea that we know other people's motivation." I mean, what if we were known in this community as people that you just couldn't offend? I mean, whoever said, "Let's go over to so and so's house today to to hear what he's offended by today?" No, nobody said that. And so, let me ask you: How are you intentionally preserving the unity of the church when someone reaches out to you to complain? Are you silencing gossip or are you stirring gossip? The last way that uh, we can break up the church goes like this. Division happens when we live in the past and, and not for the future. Now, this is a very common thing that we do in the church. We, we love to relive old memories and we try to resurrect the good old days. And, and it's not wrong, don't hear me. It's not wrong to celebrate the past and to talk about old memories. But, but division can happen when we compare or we try to recreate what used to be. In his book, Generational IQ, author Hayden Shaw states that today's church is full of more generations than any other time in the life of the church over the course of 2,000 years. Right now, there are approximately five generations represented in our church. Now, think about that for a second. Can you imagine how impossible it is to make every age demographic happy? You see, we're not called to put it on cruise control and play it safe. Jesus' goal for our life is not, is not comfort. No, the past three years here at Crossroads have been about making some changes and adjustments so that we can connect more people to Jesus as time runs out. Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 15 that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who, who are already a part of the fold and, and don't need to repent. That one sheep who is lost and wondering is our mission. Now I could be wrong about this, but I'd be willing to bet that you might see some things a little bit differently, maybe some recent changes that you don't prefer lately. You might see them a little bit differently if you realized that those changes are because we, we care about your grandchild that's been running from God. When he or she shows up here, we we wanna connect with him or her. We we don't want barriers to be in the way because we want him or her to know about Jesus. I mean, what if the style or look that you don't like is a thing that God uses to disarm your son or daughter when they show up here and they take a second look at this Jesus guy? My experience has been that we will have a totally different perspective of change once we start in actually inviting friends with us to church and we put a face to the changes that are being made. Now here's the thing, it's, it's really hard to be divided when we're so f- focused on our mission. And here at Crossroads, we wanna be a church that lives for the future because of our past. We have a great past. I love how our church has rallied together at different moments in time. And so we have a bright future, not in spite of our past, but because of our past. And so in just a minute, what we're gonna do is we're gonna end by having just a, a time of, unity as a church, we're gonna take communion. But before we do that, I just wanna tie this message together by leaving you with a question. And if you think about it, the division diverts us from what Jesus said was most important. And so wherever you are in your journey with Jesus, wherever you may be in your journey with us as a church, here's one question that I wanna throw out to you as, as we wrap things up. It goes like this, what is one way that you can move from spectating to participating? What is one way that you can move from spectating to participating? You see those moments when we are spectating, when we are watching what other people are doing, those are moments when we can tend to be more critical and and really we are criticizing somebody, what they are doing that we know we should be doing as as well. And so what does this look like for you? I'm here to tell you that we all have a part in this. We are the body of Christ, no matter your age, no matter what you look like, we need you a part of our future. And so you may think, well, what does this look like for me? Well. What are you passionate about? What gives you energy? What do you love doing? What, what are you really good at? Where are their needs in the church? And, and chances are the intersection of the answer to those questions, that's probably where God wants to use you. All of your experiences, how you're wired, how God has made you to be, He wants you to, to use that to further His glory, to further His kingdom. And, and so maybe for you it looks like serving. It's inviting more people with you. It's It's just being a a good encourager and and talking up our church out in the community. What what does this look like to you? To move from spectating to to participating. You know, it's really ironic that after Paul talks about the division and disunity in the church, he, he makes it pretty clear that the root of all of it was just pride and selfishness. And yet in verse 18, check out what Paul says. He says, "The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know that it is the very power of God." And so it is ironic that division was happening because of pride, and yet the cross, the cross demands that we deny ourselves. you can't have a lot of pride in also carry a cross with you. You see, 2,000 years ago, the cross was an object of humiliation. You didn't wear it around your neck. You didn't put it over your fireplace in your home. No, it was a device of torture. It, it represented shame and embarrassment. And yet Paul says, it's because of the cross that we can be saved. It's because of the cross that we are rescued. And you know what? It's level ground at the foot of the cross. We're all equally lost. We're all equally broken. And yet because of what Jesus endured on our behalf, we can be saved. And so that's what communion is all about. You see, back then who you ate with is who you identified with. And, and so when we eat the bread here in just a moment and we drink the juice, it literally represents that we are one, we are together. We are a part of what Jesus started 2000 years ago. That little piece of bread on the tray that's about to be passed on that bottom cup, it represents Jesus' body as he hung upon the cross. That juice represents his blood that was poured as, as he hung there. And as the music is softly played here in the next few moments, I just wanna invite you to eat the bread and drink the juice whenever you're ready. We're gonna sing one more song and, and then we'll be out of here. Let me pray for us. And then uh, let's go ahead and start, start passing the trays. Lord Jesus, you know that we're all a mess, that we're all broken. And the entire reason why you had to come to earth to die is because we couldn't save ourselves. And yet something weird just happens that the longer we follow you, we just have this tendency to make it more about us. And and I'm just speaking for myself. I I avoid discomfort. I I avoid things I don't like, I don't agree with, things that I don't prefer. And yet that's a lot of pride speaking because even you, Jesus, as as you prayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane, you made it very clear you didn't prefer to go to the cross. You hoped that there was another way. And yet you went through with the cross because of us. You couldn't stand the thought of eternity without us in it. And so as we eat the bread and drink the juice, it's just our way to say that that we're one, we're family. And yet thank you for what you've done. For it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.